Welcome to season four of Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm one of your hosts this season, Aaron Phillips, and today we're getting in our time machines and taking a sneak peek at the future of kosher food. But first, if you're a regular listener of Adventures in Jewish Studies, you might be interested in a show that explores the Jewish experience from another angle. It's the Jewish Lives Podcast, a monthly show about the lives of influential Jews from antiquity to the present, through the lens of Yale's prize-winning Jewish Lives biography series. Hear from acclaimed authors and wander through the desert with Moses. Overcome stage fright with Barbara Streisand. Roam the tough streets with Bugsy Siegel. Stage a protest with Emma Goldman. You can find the Jewish Lives podcast at jewishlives.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. The system of laws that guides kosher eating, known as kashrut, has been around since ancient times. Like many elements of Jewish life, the rules for keeping kosher appear in the Torah and are refined in later rabbinic commentaries. But it wasn't until the 16th century that a Jewish mystic from Tzfat, Israel, named Joseph Caro, turned the bits and pieces of food guidance in the Torah into a practical manual for the kitchen. In 1563, Caro wrote the Shulchan Aruch, which literally translates to the set table. It was a comprehensive document that outlined the biblical and Talmudic laws for every area of Jewish life, including kashrut. Looking at documents like the Shulchan Aruch helps give us a sense of how much food, and subsequently the laws that govern what is and isn't kosher, have changed over the past few centuries. From the invention of the fork to the commercialization of food production, Kashrut has had to adapt to increasingly challenging questions of precedent, technology, and ethics. Today, rabbis from Israel to the United States are grappling with new questions. Questions like, can eating bugs be kosher? What about CBD and THC products or impossible pork? How do we categorize and certify entirely new substances, like lab-grown meat? And can Jewish values and ethics ever become a central part of kashrut? There are many ways to answer all of these questions. In this episode, we're going to hear how leading Jewish studies scholars are approaching them, and what that might mean for the future of kosher eating. From the time the Torah was written down all the way into the 16th century when kosher laws were codified, food production was much simpler than it is today. Then it all changes when we get to the modern era because of this new type of food that we call processed food. That's all new. The debates earlier on, you know, we're talking 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, were about this animal, this thing, this there, whole things. This is Roger Horowitz, a historian and author. In his seminal book, Kosher USA, he describes how an ancient system of food laws from Israel became transformed over the course of just one century in America. Suddenly we have these cocktails that are created by modern industry, where you have not just issues of what's in there, but what is it that's derived from? What is the source of it? How is it manufactured? How is it created? And this generates a whole new set of challenges for rabbis to deal with this world of modern food processing 
And that's really what creates the challenges of the 20th century for kosher rules. These challenges also sowed distrust among kosher observant consumers. They had less visibility into the food production process. And many were afraid manufacturers would cut corrupt deals with rabbis in exchange for false assurances that their food was kosher. Many stopped buying food from Gentile-owned brands entirely. The Orthodox Union and the OK organized kashrus uh, really emerged in the 1920s and 1930s because of the challenges of industrial food. And the dilemma is this. How do you pay the rabbis? How do you pay for supervision? One way was that a firm would contract with a local synagogue rabbi and ask him to certify the food. Long due tradition of doing that. Of course, the problem there is that the person who uh, is um, asking for the supervision is paying the supervisor. The idea of the certification organization was to separate that, that the payments went to the certification organization, not to the individual rabbi, and the certification organization paid the rabbi. to Whether or not the food was kosher, you, weren't, you, weren't, you didn't have to say it's kosher to get paid. And with that, a whole new world of foods and brands opened up for kosher-keeping Jews. It marked the birth of the kosher certification industry we know today. And these organizations hit the ground running. They were so successful, in fact, that rabbis soon began to notice something unusual. Then these studies start coming out in the 1980s uh, by marketing people that go, wait a second, the majority of kosher consumers, that is consumers who look for kosher food, aren't Jewish. What's with that? And it turns out that consumers pretty much on their own have figured out that if a product is certified kosher by the OU or similar organization, they can have certain guarantees about the food that they cannot get otherwise. So for example, if you are lactose intolerant and you know anything about Jewish law, you figure, well, if it's, unless it says it's dairy, it's probably not dairy because that really, really matters to Jews, and it does, to observe with Jews. And then there's a more diffuse sense by the 80s of distrust of the food manufacturers. It's widespread, but there's lots of disputes about the quality of food um, in, the, in the 70s, especially imposition of food inspection standards or scandals. And so there's more of a generalized belief that if the rabbis are looking at the food, it's gonna be safer. So yeah, if you were to poll consumers today, you'd find similar results. Whether it's deserved or not, that kosher stamp has somehow become a mark of quality for Jews and non-Jews alike. This has opened doors for organizations like the OU and OK to enter new markets around the world, which is why more than 40% of the products in the grocery store today are kosher certified. But what about the other 60%? In order to understand the full spectrum of kosher food and get insight on where it's headed, I set out for my local kosher grocery store not too long ago. I walked in with lots of questions about what foods can and can't be considered kosher. I'm at the kosher grocery store. Like any good grocery store, we start in the produce section. And you think vegetables will be pretty much the same, right? But right away, I'm noticing the bagged salads. Uh, there are shelves with big signs that say checked and unchecked. Here is Dr. Jordan D. Rosenblum, chair of the Department of Art History and professor of classical Judaism and Jewish studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. 
to explain what these checked and unchecked signs mean. The biggest issue in Kashrut since 1994 has been right, microscopic bugs. Um, and that, you know, this scandal broke in New York City with, um, with vegetables and there were, there were bugs in it. And um, this has led to all sorts of, um, of issues of looking at each piece of lettuce to see if there's any bug in it. Broccoli and bag salad are some of the hardest things to certify as kosher. So the kinds of bugs we find in our produce by accident, mostly worms and spiders, not kosher. Understood. But I'm an environmental nerd, so this discussion immediately got me thinking about other kinds of bugs, ones people eat on purpose. If you didn't know, some climate-conscious folks have recently realized that certain types of bugs, mainly crickets, are a remarkably sustainable and healthy protein source. They've started turning them into protein powder and granola bars. Seriously, you can buy them at Whole Foods now. I'm not sponsored by the edible bug industry, but I have read the science. Insects don't take a lot of resources to cultivate, they're easy to process, and they provide an amount of protein that's on par with supplements or even certain types of meat. That's why startups have formed in the U.S. and even Israel dedicated to producing insect proteins. But can these crickets be kosher? Here's Roger Horowitz again. There are certain kinds of insects that are permitted under kosher law. Uh, the problem is we're not sure which ones they are. You know, I mean, there's, again, in the, in the listing uh, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you can't have animals that creep and crawl. That's a general prohibition, but there's some that are accepted to that. The names used are names of the era. So this is, you know, the era, this we're talking, you know, 8th century CE. And what those animals are. So it may be that locusts are kosher. Maybe. Unsure. And so you could have these as, as a form of protein. But by and large, this is one of those issues that the certifiers are conservative about. Conservative in the sense, I guess I should say stringent, where unless they're absolutely certain the insects can be kosher and they're not certain, they're not going to accept it. Professor Rosenblum also raises this point about not knowing which species of bugs are referred to in the Torah. But he sees the ultimate possibilities for insects a bit differently. There's a large swath of bugs that are kosher, biblically, you know, without a problem. Um, I mean, there are some that clearly aren't, and it points that out. But it spends a lot more time talking about bugs than people realize. Some people say, oh, well, we don't know which bugs are or aren't. But there are that you could say that for some, but there's some that's pretty clear. There's enough information in the Peshat, the most basic, clear explanation that you could, you could, there are many bugs you could easily say kosher, not kosher. And there have been, you, you can consult Rav Google and find tons of instances of some uh, people who've tried to bring that back. Um, it's totally doable, it's totally kosher certifiable, as long as it's the right thing. Um, and it can be done. Okay, so while some would argue crickets, locusts, and similar bugs are capable of being certified, as of right now, they are tentatively not kosher. The OU and OK have not looked at certifying any insect products, and their general guidance is no bugs. If these products continue to gain popularity, we'll likely see the rabbis take on this issue more earnestly. But until then, don't serve cricket canapes to your kosher dinner guests. And if you keep kosher yourself, 
proceed with caution when it comes to creepy crawlies. Okay, we've got our veggies. Naturally, the next stop is the candy aisle. I know, I know, we're skipping from something really simple to certify plants to the aisle with some of the most complicated uh, processed ingredients. But hear me out, because there is a plant that is often turned into a candy that I have questions about. Can you guess what it is? That's right. Pretty recently, rabbis began certifying a whole range of marijuana and hemp products, including kosher edibles. We're talking CBD and THC. Here's Dr. David Svi Kalman, scholar-in-residence and director of new media at the Shalom Hartman Institute. There is a really interesting situation right now where you have rabbis certifying a significant number of CBD products. They're totally fine with it. A few THC products also, as long as they're labeled as medical. And they're operating in an environment that is like a wild west of regulation. Where like the federal government's not on the ball. Some state governments are taking narrow interested, some are not. And yet you have like these kosher supervisors going into these factories in the same way that you would go into any other factory. At the moment, I think they're kind of in over their heads. Um, meaning I think they don't quite appreciate how little regulation is happening beyond the things that they are specifically focusing on. And you can see that in that, you know, there, there are products which are certified as being kosher, which have significant issues, like have been tested to have significant issues with um, like the amount of CBD in them. Like the labels are inaccurate, even if they are kosher. As both medical and recreational marijuana is legalized in a growing number of states, consumable products are making their way from the streets to dispensaries and finally to grocery stores. And when something appears on supermarket shelves, the rabbis have to start making decisions about whether or not it can be kosher. But how on earth could the same set of food laws that prohibits things like oysters possibly allow for products derived from wacky tobacco? Here's Dr. Rosenblum again. I could find a tradition that would say that, you know, drugs that are not medical, um, there are rabbinic texts that have problems with it, and then there are rabbinic texts that don't have problems with it. I mean, much of medieval mysticism, Jewish mysticism, right, was drinking or taking substances to alter your, um, or fasting or staying up for a long period of time to basically to alter what's going on chem chemically in your mind, and then thinking about God we have to ask separate questions. One is, why are you taking the drug? If, if you're taking the drug for medicinal reasons, um, the, let's look at the easiest thing. Uh, one person has um, cancer and they, they're using it to um, reduce pain and increase appetite. Um, that's gonna get the most lenient opinion possible, right? Because in that case, it's, there's a clear medical good. So even if it were impermissible other ways, right? The idea of saving the life, the same way if you needed to use a pig, uh, a, a chemical derived from a pig to save your life. If you needed to have your heart valve come from a pig, right? That, that's very different. I remember explaining to my, my Bobby about getting a pig valve and explaining to her that it was 100% kosher, right? That, um, that saving life is much more important than the fact that it's from pig. 
Pikuach Nefesh is the Jewish law that the preservation of human life overrides virtually any other religious rule of Judaism. It's this precedent that makes medical marijuana products kosher when they can help preserve life for the consumer. So back to Dr. Kalman's point, it's even more concerning that kosher organizations are certifying products without closely studying what's in them and the impact it can have on consumers especially those turning to THC or CBD to help treat medical conditions. I can imagine a situation where those kosher organizations, if they like went a little bit outside of their comfort zone and they said, okay, well, we are going to ask for a third-party lab testing for every product we certify, all of a sudden kosher certification becomes the uh, you know, unofficial mark of quality for cannabis products. It's another situation where, you know, the, the kind of narrowness of kosher supervision ends up meaning that it, it, it kind of ignores things that are of obvious interest to everybody else. In this particular case, I think it's a shame because people already look to kosher as a sign of quality, especially people who are not Jewish. So given that's the case, given that, and given that this is an area where quality is a big problem, it seems like it would make sense for kosher companies to go the extra mile to actually say like, oh yeah, we, we actually did check them out. Not just like the three things we care about, but like we check them out to find out um, whether the things in their product are actually the things in their product, whether there's insecticides in their products, whether you have a CBD product that actually has THC in it, like all that stuff. You can do that relatively easily. Um, I think it remains to be seen whether kosher companies will actually take, actually take that up. I uh, personally don't need any edibles to preserve life, um, and I don't think I'd find kosher certified ones here anyways. Uh, so I am moving on to try and find some dinner. I know I have uh, ice cream in the freezer at home, so let's check out the aisle with meat substitutes. I was actually vegan in college, so this aisle brings me back to the days of pretty gross um, fake chicken nuggets. Those types of products have long been a kosher staple, even the slightly more realistic ones. But today, the options are a lot more sophisticated. The one I'm looking for right now is, uh, yep, yeah, oh, yep, there it is, uh, Impossible Burgers. Despite the name, the Impossible Burger is totally parv, meaning it doesn't contain dairy or meat, so it's safe to eat with anything. In fact, the Impossible brand is kind of revolutionizing meat substitutes. Its goal is to produce products that smell, taste, and feel just like the real thing. And Dr. Coleman says it's that goal that's made their newest product line, Impossible Pork, a sticky topic among kosher certifiers. Impossible Pork contains exactly the same ingredients as Impossible Beef. One is certified as kosher, one is not. The reason is that one is called beef and one is called pork. This is a kind of unusual move for a kosher organization to make because most of the time these companies make decisions on very narrow grounds of are the ingredients fine or are they not fine. But in this instance, uh, the Orthodox Union decided actually we are sufficiently uncomfortable with certifying a product that is called impossible pork. And so we are not saying it's not kosher, but I think they're very careful about how they did it, saying like, we are not going to certify it. I actually don't know if this is gonna be a permanent decision. It could be that they'll turn around tomorrow and say that they will certify it uh, eventually. But I think 
at least initially, there was a concern that it would cause confusion among kosher consumers to have a product which was marketed as being just as good as pork uh, to be called kosher. It's a little bit different from, say, um, I mean, certainly there's no end of meat substitutes that have been around for a long time. This one's a little bit different because this new wave of meat substitutes isn't just trying to say, like, here's a product you can give to your annoying vegan friend who's coming to your barbecue, um, but it's actually terrible and it's just there because you need to give them something. This is a new wave of products that are saying, like, we're actually trying for um, concern about the environment reasons to create products that are as good as the real thing that can allow you to become vegetarian if you would not have otherwise become vegetarian and to kind of take over meats exalted and important place in, uh, you know, in popular culture, uh, which is which is a new thing to do. So I think because of that framing, the OU decided to take the extraordinary step of uh, not certifying this product. I found no shortage of fake pork products inside the kosher grocery store. Vegan bacon substitutes, the classic Morningstar Farms sausage. So it does seem like an odd place to draw the line. But Roger Horowitz sees this modern dilemma as part of a storied tradition in Kashrut. What's going on in the resistance to certifying uh, impossible pork actually has a long tradition of what's called protecting the fences of the, of the sages. That's, that's the phrase. In other words, that you adopt rulings that are strict, stringent is a language, in order to protect, if you will, the actual fences of Jewish law. Um, and a lot of kosher rules have that feature where you're not sure, maybe what you're saying isn't acceptable, could be acceptable, but you're afraid that if you accept it, it might lead to deterioration of the fences of the sages, these kosher laws there. Um, the, the best example of this we have in kosher traditions are the rules, for special rules for Passover, among the Ashkenazi, called Kitniyat, where you're not supposed to consume a range of, gra- of, of you know, if you will, legumes and products that, because they might encourage you to break the rules of Passover against eating leavened bread. Um, the best example of this is corn how corn cannot be consumed on Passover under the Ashkenazi rules. Now, corn is not prescribed in the Torah or the Talmud because corn didn't exist to that. Corn is a product of the New World. and doesn't go to Europe until the, until the 16th century. So it's a new product. So it cannot be under the prohibition for Passover that goes back there. But corn can be turned into bread. It can be turned into products that look like wheat-based products. So the rabbi said, no, you can't have corn because it might lead people to confuse the fences. There's another product in the meat substitutes aisle at the kosher grocery store that throws a bit of a wrench in this argument. Dynasty is a company that has been making extremely realistic fake shellfish products for years. Crab, lobster, shrimp. Why are these products okay, but this new hyper-realistic pork isn't? Roger sees this as an indicator of pork's special taboo status among Jews. I think it's very important to think about how pork occupies a special place as a Jewish food prohibition. Um, It it really has become a taboo in a very basic sense that you should not eat pork. Sure, maybe Jews in the early 20th century that were becoming more liberal would eat oysters, you know, because it was so widespread. They would eat seafood you know, lobster, 
things like that. But they wouldn't eat pork. And one of the reasons is that pork was such a defining line for Jews in medieval Europe. It was what defined a Jew as being a Jew, you did not eat pork. You were not defined as a Jew because you didn't eat oysters. That was no big deal. Despite these strong arguments against impossible pork, it's important to note that the Orthodox Union didn't actually come to a decision on the product. They simply declined to certify it as kosher. So you won't find it in the kosher grocery store, but some may still choose to eat it at home. It's part of the tricky political and social balance of kosher rulings. What you eat has always been a political matter for Jews. And certainly the issue of what, how you legislate has always colored, you know, Jewish, Jewish traditions. Something like the waiting period between when you can have a milk meal and a meat meal. Is it one hour, three hours, six hours and all that? Um, it's pretty clear that at a certain point, the reason for the stricter prohibitions was to distinguish Jews who wanted to feel more from, more observant, from those who they felt relaxed. So that's always been an element of kosher law, those kinds of politics and, and, and social, social issues. It's also thinking about Jews as a social group, a minority group in a large society, and how do you help use the kosher laws to provide cohesion within the side population. So it might seem a contradiction, uh, and maybe in a strictly scientific sense it is, but it's not if you think that one of the main purposes of ritual practice was to create a cohesion among a population that was a minority in, in, a, in a Christian and Islamic world that did not have a nation state, that have no, no other way of holding together. And you needed to have, if instead, law and practice as a way to define what you were as a Jew. All right, I've got my impossible burgers and a few other meat substitutes. I'm feeling more knowledgeable about what emerging foods uh, rabbis do and don't consider kosher. Um, but all this talk of fake meat has me a little curious about a sort of new food technology. Um, I saw a news headline the other day about lab-grown meat. Scientists that have actually been able to grow a meat substitute using cultured cells. This is unlike anything we've ever seen or certified. And while this stuff isn't available commercially yet, I wonder if I could ever see it a store like this? Um, and if so, what aisle it would end up in? Turns out, Dr. Rosenblum has been thinking about this too. He had some ideas. So I should actually step back first and say, do you believe that a cell itself has to follow all the rules of meat? Or, does, or is it a totally different thing? And is it so small that it doesn't matter? Right, which you could, you could see how you could argue either way, right? That it's so tiny, a cell is so tiny. It's less than 1 60th, which is the city standard of um, if, if something is less than 1 60th not allowed, uh, you know, the, then it's, and it's mixed in, then, and the, re, the vast majority is kosher, you can ignore it. So the question is, does it count at all? Um, but if it does, then you have the, the next questions I asked was, where does it come from? Is it a kosher animal, not kosher animal? Was it slaughtered or not? Um, and all of these questions will will divert off answers. Some will say, yes, it matters. Some will say no, right? Um, and so th before we get anywhere else, we have to start with what, what do you understand it as? Is this so different than anything else that, it, uh, that the rules don't apply in that way? Well, then that's an easy answer. If it's not, well, then you have to decide all of these other things. Does it matter 
like if it's a pig cell versus a cow cell. In order to make their ruling, the rabbis will have to determine if a cell is significant enough to count as a piece of meat on its own. And along that line, they'll have to decide whether a pig cell could ever be kosher in that microscopic amount. Dr. Kalman raises some additional questions. And then there are questions around, you know, are there certain conditions in which it has to be grown? Uh, right. One of the things that makes me kosher is not just like what animal it comes from, but is it prepared properly? Is it slaughtered properly? So are there going to be similar kinds of conditions put on lab-grown meat? Um, and then there are questions around, okay, even assuming it is kosher, is it considered meat? Meaning, can you not eat it with dairy products? Do you have to wait, you know, one or three or six hours after eating it before eating a dairy product? Or is it considered parv? Um, so like it's neutral, it's neither neither dairy nor meat. I don't know that there's a firm answer to that. There probably won't be a firm answer to that until um, the products come onto the shelves. My suspicion is that there will be an inclination to treat it as meat. And I don't know uh, whether, you know, we'll start suddenly seeing a lot of people eat um, cellular pork products or not. I'm curious to find out, too. This is futuristic stuff. But Roger Horowitz reminds us that like all future-looking debates on kashrut, there are some historical precedents we can look to for reference. Here, one that stands out is Panim Hadashat, a theory about how kosher laws apply to a product that's been transformed beyond recognition. There is a, a strand of Jewish law which says that if the product is transformed into something utterly different than what it was, that the earlier prohibitions on it do not apply. Uh, Panem Hadasha is the, is the theory behind it. Uh, and that is a theory that justifies considering meat-based gelatin as kosher because the, the gelatin is no longer any resemblance to the meat that, that it came from. Uh, that's a minority opinion among Orthodox Jews today. Most Orthodox Jews do not accept Panem Hadasha as having much salience for the meat industry today. But it is a kosher tradition. Uh, and we do have um, some respected 14th, 15th, 16th century rabbis uh, accepting certain products as, as that. Um, so there is a tradition there. The, the most important tradition there, which is, again, very complicated, has to do with creating cheese, where to create cheese in a pre-industrial era, you use rennet to curdle milk. The rennet comes from an animal's stomach. And so you'd pump the milk into the stomach of a slaughtered animal, and that would turn it into cheese. Well, is this an improper mixture of meat and milk, putting this together there? And since this was the only way to make cheese, the rabbis had really figured, tried to figure out a way to let this happen. Um, and the argument here is that when this happens, the rennet uh, undergoes a fundamental transformation when it turns into the cheese. It's not, it becomes associated from the animal that was its source. So therefore, you, you can do it. Despite the abundance of historical examples we can draw on, there's still no clear answer about how the rabbis will rule on lab-grown meat. And that's because, again, there are social and political factors to consider. Here's Dr. Rosenblum again. This comes to what you want the answer to be. I can find you precedents that can unmeatify it and that can meatify it. This is what um, studying any legal system requires you to do, it becomes the argument that you find most persuasive. And in a decentralized religion, like Judaism, like if, if you if you find one argument more persuasive and your community doesn't support it, at a certain point you might say, well, this community isn't my community anymore, that community is. 
Cellular meat is far off on the horizon, so for the time being, I don't see anyone leaving their community over it. But the technology will eventually make its way to store shelves. And because of all the questions it raises, Dr. Coleman says it's unlikely the rabbis will get a chance to rule on it before it becomes available. Rabbis are never the first on almost any technological question. Um, maybe that will change down the road, but um, for many reasons, rabbis are often, and Jewish leaders in general, are often um, a little bit late to the game. Uh, now, sometimes there is interesting speculation about you know how a certain area of law will develop, but it's often uh, Jewish people you know living their Jewish lives, whether that's observant Jewish lives or not, who end up deciding whether things are or not acceptable. Dr. Kalman's point here really gets to a wider conversation that is happening in and outside of the kosher world. As consumers become more aware of the environmental and social impacts of their food choices, they're beginning to think about and act on a different set of Jewish laws, those around justice and how they intersect with kashrut. But in a lot of cases, the answer is they still don't. You know, there is a kind of decision made. I don't think anyone decided this um, intentionally, but there's a decision made in the beginning of the 20th century to treat kosher as, as basically valueless. Not always valueless, but as being like more likely to be valueless than the opposite. And so it is hard to move away from that. Whereas, you know, other technologies, like for example, electricity around Shabbat is very much a value laden technology, right? Like rabbis make decisions about appropriate and inappropriate uses of new technologies on Shabbat all the time. And those are almost always connected to uh, the central question of what will this do to the experience of Shabbat? In ways that questions around kashrut are not connected to like the question of like, what will this do to ethical consumption. Um, they're not really connected to anything. They're just connected to like some abstract set of rules within Jewish law, um, with, with some exceptions. So it's really hard to break out of that paradigm, um, in part because like there's no consensus on what kashrut is about. There have long been, you know, within Jewish thought, attempts to make sense of kosher regulations. You know, there have been rabbis who have attempted to say like, oh yeah, it's because it's healthier in some way. You know, oh, like, yes, there's diseases in pigs that God was trying to um, help the Jewish people avoid. I think most people, even most people who keep kosher, take it as, as exactly about observing Jewish law, no more, no less. While this way of thinking came into focus in the early 20th century with the rise of industrial agriculture and concentrated animal feeding operations, we can trace it all the way back to our 16th century kosher handbook, the Shulchan Aruch. Here's Roger Horowitz again. So you had a variety of Jewish rules and practices that were in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Talmud, about business, for example, things you should do in business, things you should do for the farmer, things you should do in society. Um, that's like a separate, separate book, literally a separate book in the Shulchan Aruch. By and large, it's not been connected to kosher practice. Kosher practice was based upon traditions unique to that set of rules. So if you were trying to figure out if, say, a cow killed in the 16th century is kosher, you looked at the Shulchan Aruch section on what made it kosher, and you worried about the lungs and other kinds of deformities and was, a, was a, the throat slit, whatever. You didn't worry about how it was purchased. You didn't worry about how, the, how, the, how it was raised. That was irrelevant. 
So there's a long tradition, for good or for bad, in kashrut being separate from issues of ethics. And ethics is a very important part of Jewish law. That may contribute to some of the disputes today that you have that separation. Despite the historical separation, the past two decades has seen a rise in ethical kosher activism. Throughout the 2000s, several organizations were founded to address issues such as the ethical treatment of kosher livestock animals and fair labor practices for kosher restaurant workers. It's been a long and arduous fight for these groups, with lots of pushback from mainstream kosher certifiers. But more recently, they've won a few major victories. In 2018, for example, the Orthodox Union stopped certifying meat produced using shackle and hoist, a method of slaughter that causes pain and distress for animals. Israel also banned imports of this type of meat around the same time. Today, a number of Jewish institutions, synagogues, farms, Hillel groups on college campuses, are adopting ethical or plant-based food policies for catered events. As we've learned, the kosher certifying organizations take cues from their consumer base. So as these ideas continue to spread, we could see more decisions like the 2018 shackle and hoist ban that blend ethics with Jewish law. Dr. Rosenblum sees this as a natural progression. Jews, like many other communities today, are thinking more deeply about the social and environmental impacts of their food. Everyone communicates messages with the way they eat, intentionally or unintentionally. And that's something that I think it's important for many communities, reform or otherwise, Jewish or non-Jewish, etc., to take a moment to think about what message they're communicating through their food and if it matches up with their broader ethics. Kosher laws may be ancient, but the way we interpret them is constantly changing. Kosher practice is adapted according to what foods, tools, and cooking methods are available. And the social and political context matters. Just like many parts of Jewish identity, kashrut is a conversation, a debate. Between different sets of rabbis, the consumers making choices at the grocery store and in the kitchen, the food producers, whether they're Jewish or just looking for a kosher stamp. So I, for one, hope the Jewish community continues to discuss, and even disagree, about unexplored protein sources, lab-grown food, and how kosher eating can become a way to live Jewish values. And that's it. That's my trip. Hope you learned a little something. Go get a snack. Maybe think a little deeper about the cultural or ethical motivations behind your snack choice whether you're Jewish or not, uh, I'm going to have a nice, non-controversial kosher kanish. And we will see you next time. All right. Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Salo W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. I'm the lead producer for this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, we hope you'll help support it by going to associationforjewishstudies.org slash donate. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization. It features an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. 
Visit associationforjewishstudies.org for more information on what we do, to learn about joining if you're a Jewish Studies scholar, or to find out how to bring a Jewish Studies scholar to your community. See you next time on Adventures in Jewish Studies.